If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 307 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson Hamilton today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Hope you hang around. Lots going on and, and, you know, my goodness, some, some sad news, uh, again, over and above over the weekend, a uh, horrific, uh, Hamilton shooting, a, a young couple about to be, or sorry, about to be married, engaged, uh, in some sort of dispute with landlord, shots fired, the couple's dead. Uh, landlord dead, and it's just what what a horrific, horrific story uh, gripping our city today. Um, and our thoughts and prayers go out to all of those affected and every Hamiltonian who's uh, feeling the pain of that today. Also, um, you know, another story of a another police officer who has uh, died in the line of duty in a traffic accident. Also, a school bus driver, an Ontario pol- uh, provincial police officer driving an unmarked vehicle and a school bus driver both died a result of a crash uh, north of Woodstock uh, this morning. Provincial police have announced uh, they say the collision happened just before 7 a.m. at the intersection of Highway 59 and Oxford County Road 33. Police say there were no children, thankfully, aboard the bus at the time of the crash. Uh, 35-year-old uh, detective has passed away and was with the Perth County OPP detachment, killed in the collision, served at the Huron-Perth Community Street Crime Unit, uh, deeply saddened over this tragic incident as two families mourn the loss of their loved ones, says the OPP uh, commissioner, offering deepest condolences to the families and friends. So as we tr- uh, find out more details on that uh, accident and what has happened that uh, has taken the life of a school bus driver and, of course, a uh, an OPP officer yet again. All right, uh, what else we got going on? Um, th- this is fascinating and just broke on the Global News website, and Johnson must step aside as the special rapporteur, so says an NDP motion. This is fascinating, uh, considering that Jagmeet Singh has been calling for a public inquiry. Of course, David Johnston recommending there is no public inquiry here, and but but still hasn't really done much <laughs> about following up on the vote in the House, which everybody wants a public inquiry. They're the only people that don't is the Prime Minister and David Johnston. So uh, at the end of the day, Jagmeet Singh, as we talked about on Friday, could easily control all of this. Uh, and instead of and, and avoiding the discussion about a public inquiry, he's tabling a much softer, well, he's not, uh, a member has a much softer approach to it, calling for David Johnston to step aside, the federal, federal MTP tabling a motion calling for the, for David Johnston to step aside as special rapporteur investigating foreign interference in Canada's affairs, uh, the leader said on Monday today. And there was a, a lot of chatter going into the weekend that David Johnston was still going to be a part of this moving forward, not pushing the government for a public inquiry, but instead for David Johnston's removal. Uh, of this moving forward. We've tabled a motion that will be debated in the House 
uh, coming up tomorrow, Singh said, given the clear apprehension of bias at this point, we're going to be asking for Mr. Johnston to step aside a special rapporteur. Uh, Singh said it is clear there is a mounting appearance of bias with Johnston, so much so that it erodes the work that the special rapporteur can do. So, again, very odd that the leader of the NDP would go that far, but yet not use his power to demand a public inquiry as everyone except uh, Jugmeet, or sorry, except David Johnston and the Prime Minister is asking for. Opposition motion was tabled uh, by NDP MP Rachel Blaney and noted that the House of Commons has called on the government to launch a public inquiry into for- foreign interference in both March and May. It also notes that Johnson recommended against an inquiry despite acknowledging significant gaps and many questions either unasked or unanswered in his report. Johnson recommended against the public inquiry. Uh, his reasoning was that uh, much of the intelligence that uh, would be looked at could not be made public and recommended the ongoing probe to conduct hearings as they continue into this matter, which, you know, we know the filibuster that's been going on there with trying to get the, um, uh, uh, the, the head of Katie Telford, the chief of staff from the, for the prime minister to testify. So it, it's kind of a kangaroo court at best, uh, considering the, the control that the liberal party has over this. Now the NDP asking for the special rapporteur Johnston to step aside as opposed to just using his power to force the Liberal Party into calling a public inquiry. Many are asking that question. Um, again, unanswered questions, including the continued reports of extensive Chinese interference in election. That includes the Canadian Security and Intelligence Services, CSIS, warning former Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, that China was attempting to influence him during his time as leader, including the 2021 election in which he ran, according to a source that's familiar with the uh, the situation. And an NDP MP, Kenny uh, uh, Jenny Kwan, also revealed Monday that CSIS warned her uh, weeks ago that she is also target of a foreign interference by China. So both the conservative NDP and who knows who, who knows who else uh, that is involved in this but many surprised over the weekend to hear Aaron O'Toole's name brought up in all of this so where does it go moving forward we will certainly find out i'm going to have Phil Gursky on a little later on he's penned a uh, a great article in the Ottawa Citizen and former employee of CSIS and such we've had him on the show many times and very very offended of how David Johnson pulls apart CSIS uh in trying to uh do whatever he's doing moving forward. Uh, We'll have him on coming up uh, a little later on in the show to discuss all of that. A global pandemic. My goodness. Uh, The global pandemic, three years now. It's We're coming out of this. Uh, Everybody, is it over? The states of emergency have been been canceled. Uh, That's a good thing. It's still with us. Um, But certainly it has readjusted a lot of things in life. Uh, And we remember talking about uh, towards the latter half of this, uh, the mass exodus that was going to happen, people changing jobs, this, that and the other. How do you retain workers? Uh, the shortage and, you know, unbelievably low unemployment rate that we're experiencing now. Should more companies be practicing stay interviews? You know, the interview when you go get the job, that's one thing, but, you know, on a regular basis. Now, a lot of companies do this. It's just an annual kind of thing to, you know, to just stay connected to employees. But is, 
Is there something different now trying to retain them in which employers could uh, conduct regular interviews to get feedback from employees and learn what they can do to retain them and uh, improve the workplace? To talk more, Dr. Ian Lee is with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well, thanks. So we know, uh, Ian, that that a lot of co- uh, companies, or certainly good companies, will have some sort of uh, performance meeting or performance review or some sort of uh, scheduled meeting once a year to kind of touch on all of this. Is this different? How is this different? Well, what's changed? Uh, it is different um, because the, uh, call it the balance of power, is shifting. Um, and I mean by that, that sounds very sort of portentous or something, but the last 50 years, the, the very big picture was there were more workers than there were jobs. And so the um, in terms of a bargaining power, employers had more power, more clout um, than the employees, not because they were big and every individual employee was was, you know, small or individuals. That's not wise because there was a an aggregate. They had lots of choices. So employers had lots of choices. You didn't work out. Hey, out the door you go. We'll replace you. There's 10 more waiting to replace you. And so uh, the uh, employers had the upper hand. They had uh, much more bargaining power. So what I'm saying is, is that I'm just sorry about that. I'm just getting rid of that. Um, my apologies. Um, the um, What's happened is because of the complete shift um, from from the, the last 50 years, now we're looking at labor shortages and companies are realizing it's, you know, it's, it's the old days are gone. And so, you know, it's similar. What I'm trying to describe to you is similar to what uh, some of us teach um, in entrepreneurship studies or to, to uh, small business people. It's very different. It's very expensive to get a customer, to obtain a customer. And as much, if you have customers who are already dealing with you, you want to keep them. That's why companies like Bell Canada have a department called customer retention. And so does Rogers. And they do have they do handstands to keep you on the books because they know how expensive it is to go find new customers. It's the same logic. When you have a shortage of employees, um, uh, workers in the workforce, then it makes a lot of sense to try to keep your, if you've already gone and spent all that money doing the recruiting of the people you have on the books, who are working for you and they're good workers. Why on earth do you want to let them walk out the door to a competitor where they're going to now compete against you? So wouldn't it be more prudent, more strategic to say, you know what? Let's let's keep checking in with our employees to make sure that, you know, they're happy cappers. Now, that doesn't mean that some employees won't complain and moan and and ask for things that can't be done. But, you know, most my experience has been is most employees are reasonable. And they're not going to make preposterous, foolish, nonsensical demands. Many demands from ordinary employees are, are, are commonsensical, and they, they are dealing with real issues. So, you know, if you can find that out and, and deal with those problems before they quit and go at the door, it's going to save you a lot of money because recruitment of employees is not free. It's expensive. So what would or should a stay interview entail? Um, I don't want to overstep my jurisdiction here, Scott, and tell you I'm into HR now. I'm not. I'm yeah. a strategy <laughs> Um, And I have uh, colleagues that actually teach HR and HR strategies. I deal with, I mean, strategy deals with the bigger picture, you know, like, are you going in the right direction? And how do you deal with uh, customer retention? Very large issues. 
In other words, should you deal with customer retention? But when it gets down into the nitty gritty of what they ought to be doing, um, you know, the the managers and HR departments are developing plans to do that. I mean, I've seen it in operations. I've seen it actually um, in the university and uh, where, you know, a, a per, an employee, a star employee is poached by another university in another city, mm. sometimes in the States, sometimes in Toronto at the U of T, for example. And uh, you you do go to your way. It's not always about money, by the way. People think it's just for about money. Sometimes it's working conditions. Uh, sometimes it's about hours, you know. And I know some smaller companies, to answer your question, I, I've heard anecdotally from a lot of smaller uh, companies and associations here in Ottawa that um, people are much more concerned right now about, for example, flexibility. Uh, are you going to make me go to work five days a week? And and I have a friend of mine who is the head of an association, and she brags the, to uh, prospective employees and to her existing employees, I will not make you go to work five days a week downtown. You can work remotely. And in the summer, as an added benefit, she gives them uh, for the month of July and August, Fridays off throughout the summer for the eight uh, weeks in the summer. Well, that is the kind of thing that really motivates employees and engenders employee loyalty. So those are the kinds of, I think, very pragmatic things. You know, are you going to be flexible about working at home remotely? Are you going to be flexible about maybe having a four-day work week just in the summer months of July and August? Things like that that aren't that expensive and sometimes will increase productivity will go a long way to keeping people on your books. And it's very expensive to recruit good people. The Stay Interview to Retain Employees. Dr. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Always fun, Ian. Thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. Lots of issues in a post-pandemic world. Uh, the homeless issue has just skyrocketed in cities uh, right the way across this country. Hamilton, certainly no different. And uh, the homeless situation has become a full, uh, a full blown crisis in, in many areas, including this one. Uh, lots of different suggestions coming up. Not really solid solutions at this point, including um, supplying services to camps, encampments that are already set up. And that was turned down by, uh, by city council however, are now researching the idea of an advocate registry, which would allow residents to host someone living in an encampment to live on their property, are being looked at by city staff. Uh, this after council votes nine to six in favor of looking into this pro uh, proposal. The idea has earned uh, various responses and perspectives among them. The tenants' rights group, uh, Acorn Hamilton, has weighed in. Our guest represented Acorn at the at a rally held outside of City Hall on Friday, staged by the Hamilton Encampment Support Network, urging council to drop the idea and focus on other solutions. To talk more about all of this, uh, Stuart Klazinga is with us, member of Acorn Hamilton's East End chapter, and with us now. Stuart, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am uh, doing well, and yourself? So far, so good, Stuart. This is uh, a problem which obviously we can't turn away from. It has grown that much. What is your thought on the Advocate Registry, which allows residents to host people, uh, encampments on their property? Your thoughts, how this would all play out? Well, first, I, I don't see uh, the City of Hamilton's legal department signing off on this in any way. Um, so... I, I, I don't see it getting past that particular hurdle, but um, it's not 
a housing solution. Um, I mean, someone, sure, they can they can let someone live in their backyard in a tent, but then uh, what happens when they say, okay, no, I want to use my backyard for something else. You have to leave. We're just, we're just moving them around again. Um, adequate housing is a human right, and it, it, it's one that the city is failing to provide to its residents. And um, the, the housing market and the rental market is certainly not, not helping with that. Um, I mean, many people with jobs just cannot afford a place to live. Um, and so housing being a commodity that is uh, essentially uh, traded and bartered for profit is uh, um, really the root cause of, of, of all of this, in, in my opinion. Do you think that these are being these ideas are being floated around as a viable option or just something in in, in midterm to just get us to where we need to be? The idea on it on its own can never be more than a temporary stopgap, yeah. a, a band aid measure, so to speak. Um, but it, it, it's not something that the city should be doing because the city has the uh, the resources and the authority to go beyond charity, which is essentially what this policy is creating. Um, so if there was, say, a church with a large yard that was saying, we are opening our space for 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 um, houseless people to come and, and, and set up a tent here, I myself would be perfectly fine with that because it, it it's it's there like that is how they can affect change or at least mm-hmm. do something positive is through creating charity. The city does not need to create charity. Uh, charities are created because governments uh, fail to act appropriately. What about providing services for the encampment, which was discussed earlier? So. I'm not as well versed on that, but um, absolutely, uh, you know, people uh, who don't have a place of their own, they still need access to clean water. They still need access to uh, basic hygiene and, um, you know, garbage collection, stuff like that. Uh, If, if, if we, um, if, if this is all that we are leaving them, like the all the space that we're leaving them to occupy then then we should do as much as we can to ensure that that space is uh safe for them it is clean for them and uh and and that we look after them like we would look after uh, any other resident in the city and obviously issues with encampments come with the winter months i mean how do you do the uh, camping through the summer months is one thing once you get into November, December, January, February, March, that's a whole different scenario. What do you do then? So in your mind, Stuart, we talk about housing and we need more housing. We need more. And and that's been an ongoing issue with homelessness prior to the pandemic. Now we've seen this spike, this rapid spike. How do we deal with that? Yeah, uh, we need to start opening up as much uh, spaces as we can. Um we need to see vacant homes and 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 vacant units filled. Uh, we can't let these spaces remain unoccupied uh, when there are people living on the street. Uh, the city needs to incentivize uh, af- affordable housing being built. The city needs to um, ensure that there are uh, the resources for those things to get built within the city. 
So for you, this is simply uh, build more uh, affordable housing, create more affordable housing spaces uh, rather than temporary Band-Aid solutions that we're seeing. Yeah, well, I'm not saying that uh, simply more affordable housing would solve every problem, but it would certainly go a long way. Um, you know, like empty schools, empty office buildings. Yeah. The... The, the 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 city has the authority and the resources to ensure that those kinds of spaces uh, can be used as as better uh, stopgap band-aid measures, um, you know. So that's that's another route to take. But in the end, we just we need more places available, and they need to be uh, affordable, and we need to be providing adequate shelter for everyone. I'm not sure how many vacant buildings there are, Stuart, in the city, but you're talking about things like schools and such, and we certainly know there are a, a couple of them. Why hasn't something like that been suggested? Is it possible? Is it feasible? I don't know. Uh, that's not exactly my wheelhouse. If I had to hazard a guess, I would say uh, that it uh, has to do with the um, relationship between the school board, who is ultimately responsible for that property, uh, and the city. Um, there are uh, different authorities at play there, and uh, anytime you're trying to get two bureaucracies or governments to communicate to each other, everyone knows that it, 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 it's not as simple as it sounds, right? So. Mm. Your thoughts on uh, the tragic story we heard over the weekend, uh, a dispute between landlord and tenants, uh, homicide, three people killed as a result of this young couple and the landlord. I mean, my goodness, where does this go, Stuart? Well, uh, we were certainly shocked when we read the news. Uh, we're, we're deeply troubled by, mm. by this. And uh, tenants facing threats or harassments from their landlords isn't something new, uh, but this is certainly an extreme example. And um, we're also very disappointed by some of the comments that we're reading online being left by uh, housing commodity speculators, uh, as well as the, the landlord lobby, uh, you know, suggestions that, oh, these tenants were, uh, were pushing their landlord to the brink and the landlord snapped or uh, that, hmm. you know, this is the fault of the landlord tenant board and the landlord tenant board isn't, uh, isn't strict enough on, on tenants. Uh, the landlord tenant board has a very long hit, long and well-established history of, of being in favor of, the landlords more than anything else. So, Stuart Klazinga with us, member Acorn Hamilton's East End chapter and talking about advocacy registry for those that are homeless. Stuart, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much for having me on. Have a great day. We talk a lot about music, uh, everything with Alan Cross, host of the ongoing history of new music. And last week we touched on, the last time we spoke, uh, about AI, and we kind of got into it, but not really. And Alan has a, a neat piece, which you can find on our website right now, about artificial, uh, artificial intelligence and music. Hear me out. Artificial intelligence may not be bad for music after all. Alan is with us now. Alan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yep, doing okay. So we hear it's bad because there's no creativity. It's just production stuff, uh, which I guess is kind of creative. But uh, you're copying, you're plagiarizing, you're ripping people off. Um, There's no royalties here. So that seems to be the bad stuff. What's the good stuff? Well, the good stuff is that this could be some sort of new tool that smart and creative people can use to create new kinds of music. I think we may have talked about this before. 
where we, you know the synthesizer when it first came out was considered to be the devil because it was putting all these live musicians out of business. You know, Barry Manilow in 1982 decided he was going to go on tour and not take an orchestra with him for the first time. Instead, going with just two synthesizer players, which created all kinds of problems with the musicians' unions. Uh, then we had, for example, sampling come along in the early 1980s, the idea of deconstructing songs into their constituent parts and then putting different parts together to create a brand new song. Well, that was the end of, of creativity as well, because you were simply recycling the works of, of other people. But in both cases, synthesizers became an essential part of modern music. Sampling has become an essential part of modern music. So it's very possible that uh, this this new AI revolution in music will do exactly the same thing. Uh, right now, we're in the wild, wild west segment of it all. Nobody really knows where it's going. The legalities are, are still kind of weird, just as they were weird with synthesizers and sampling back in the day. But that will get sorted out. And when it finally does, because there's going to be so much money on the table to do these things, you're going to be able to, I, I think AI is going to become uh, a new powerful tool and a new way of, of, uh, of, of, of creating music. Uh, when it comes to music and tech, tech almost always wins. And this is just another example of how this is going to play out. Uh, you gave a couple of examples in this article, including writer's block, the, sign, the songwriting aspect, which is obviously the genesis of all of this. Explain that. Yeah, if you are a songwriter, you only know what you know. You only know what you've been exposed to, what you've absorbed, what's influenced you. And occasionally, you know, what's going to happen is you're going to run up against a situation where you just run out of ideas based on what you know. So what you can do is to break this writer's block and start listening to stuff that's unfamiliar to you. That's that's one way. But that could, that could take a lot of time. You know, what, where do you start? What do you do it? Where do you source this music and how do you absorb it? Well, what if you had a program that said, look, I've got a problem and I have an idea, but I don't know how to do it. Let's make it my, uh, my, um, my example was uh, uh, play me some accordion based industrial dance music with a Lady Gaga <laughs> style vocal and she's singing in Lithuanian. <laughs> uh, you'll be able to get that. And I'm not saying it's going to be very good, but, you know, by playing around with, with these goofy sort of commands, mm. just throwing stuff against the wall, you're going to get back some really interesting things. And it's possible that through some trial and error, a new type of inspiration will hit and you're, you're off and running. But again, you know, if you are a musician, you develop a style and after that style gets solidified, becomes mature, you basically are plagiarizing yourself, which, which means you only know what you know, and you can only play what you know, and you can only compose what you know. This might be a way to get you out of your comfort zone. This is the same debate, whether you're talking about music or writing essays. You can take it and copy it word for word and hand it in, and you'll get what we just heard in the sampling with Drake. It's a ripoff. Or you can take it to stimulate what you already know and the tools you already have. Yeah, exactly. So, it can be a, a very important, <coughs> excuse me, songwriting tool, because again, we only have twelve notes in our Western musical scale. Um, we well, you know, with lyrical ideas, you know, just throw some stuff against the wall, see what comes back. You don't take what the machine does, but you can certainly maybe take some cues from it. It's it's certainly a lot faster than you know roaming through a thesaurus or a rhyming dictionary or, like I said. Mm -hmm 
plunging yourself into a whole bunch of unfamiliar music in hopes that you'll stumble across the right thing. Where do you draw the line? How do you find the balance? When does it, you know, when are, when are you using the technology for bad as opposed to good? Don't know. We had the same sort of discussion when it came to sampling in the early 1980s when people were just grabbing bits and pieces of songs willy-nilly and putting them out. Uh, you know, there were lawsuits. There was, you know, rightful claims of plagiarism and copyright infringement. Uh, that, however, was eventually sorted out. And now you cannot sample someone without A, getting permission and B, paying for the, paying for the privilege of doing that sort of thing. So I would imagine with, with this, we're going to see sort of the, the, the same thing. Let's, let's use another example. Um, I am a songwriter and I want to write a song for pick your artist, Adele. And I want to see what my song would sound like in the hands of Adele. So I could hmm. program a machine, a program to uh, sing my song in the style of Adele. And that would tell me whether it would work or not. Wow. Okay, that's, that's, that's a cool thing. I mean, you can't necessarily, again, a machine can only mimic. It can't produce the same sort of uh, weird yeah. irregularities and human, you know, authenticity that of the human voice, the human emotion can, can, um, can create. It is, it only can mimic. So you get a very reasonable facsimile of something, but it's not the real thing. And I don't think people are going to necessarily buy the real thing. You you want that human element, so that's 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 one example. Uh, Alan Cross yeah. with us. Oh no, we got to cut you off there, Alan. Alan Cross with us, host of the ongoing history of new music, life, and music with artificial intelligence. The his article is on the global website right now. Alan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Earlier on, we were talking about how the employment situation has changed in a post-pandemic world. Lots of people in the older edge of the spectrum are retiring earlier in the whole global pandemic thing. But what do Canadians really need in order to retire? And how can you figure out what really works for you? Well, we talk about this every Saturday morning between 8 and 9 right here on CHML on planning your financial future with Don Fox, executive financial consultant with the Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management, and here now. Don, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing great, Scott. How about yourself? So does, good so far. So does everybody say to you, like, okay, what's my number, Don? And what does that mean? Is that how much you need in savings in order to retire, what your number is? You know what? It could. There's a whole lot of uh, variables that go into a retirement plan. So, you know, first of all, you have your candidate pension plan. You have your old age security. Did you de delay it? Do you have a, a defined contribution through work? So you have all these different sources of income and then you have a pile of money and that money could be RSP money. It could be tax-free savings account money or it could be non-registered money, say if you sold your house and invested that. So then you have different types and they're all taxed differently too. So it's not simply as easy as saying, what's my um, number? Um, how you come up with that number is extremely important. So, you know, step one, um, and I literally just got off an appointment right now, and this person was great, brought all his expenses. Step one is to find out what is your lifestyle? What do you spend per month? And and that is that will determine kind of, you know, to answer your question, Scott, what is your number? First thing, start start with your cash flow. So you see what you need, and then we can work it backwards 
and take into account all sorts of things and inflation, all sorts, you know, all sorts of variables, what your rate of return is. And that all goes into this blender, so to speak, and out comes what your number should be. <laughs> Which is obviously why, you know, you need a financial planner helping you through all this stuff. But the point you're making here is one size doesn't fit all. So what works for me doesn't work for somebody else, vice versa. Ah, absolutely. Vast differences. You know, some people say, oh boy, if I had this, I'd retire tomorrow. Another person wouldn't be half of what they need. And so, and again, what we just spoke with uh, literally 15 minutes ago is, well, maybe you want to spend more in the first, say, 10 years. And I I use the analogy, it's kind of called the the go-go years. And then say from 65 to 75, and then 75 to 85 might be the slow-go years. Meaning, yeah, you know what? I'm not going to go in the airports. I'm not going to do the tra- trip to Europe or as much. I may just go to Florida and, you know, more more subdued travel per se, or maybe less travel, you know, significantly less. And then the no-go years. Weirdly enough, this the start is expensive. Those go-go years are expensive because like a honeymoon. Mm. You want to do lots of stuff. You're having a blast. The no-go years are expensive because now you're paying for some subsidized um, living or assisted living rather. And the slow go years are the least expensive time of your life because you're you got money, but now you're not doing as much. So, you know, I always like to maximize fun. When it comes to retirement planning, let's maximize the most fun you have so there will be less regrets or no regrets, ideally. So and that's at the beginning of your retirement. But can you afford it? And what can you afford? And those are all the scenarios we go through. What about uh, the changing times in a post-pandemic world? Everybody's noticed how much everything has gone up. Those on fixed incomes, obviously, feeling the pinch the most. Uh, What do you say to those that are scared of of what we're seeing and inflation and just the prices going through the roof? Yeah, great, great point, Scott. Um, Inflation is a factor we put in. So we use an inflation assumption and we can play with that assumption. So we use a what if in our plans. So what if inflation was 4% for the rest of the next 25 years or, or 3% or, you know, so we can actually put that and you, you'll get on the fly results. So it's called a, ours is called a living plan portal. So it literally is a living plan. So you can do all these what if factors. And if in high inflation is a massive amount of stress on a financial plan, that's actually probably why they, you know, as you mentioned, it, it affects every side of it. It affects the government's debt because they have to make the interest payments on this, but it affects the lower income people the most because, you know, are their incomes going to, you know, keep up with the rising costs of food, rent, et cetera. So yeah, that's a, that's a major factor inflation and it's definitely should be part of your financial plan. Most are not. And when I what say about- that, most people will simply say, oh, well, if you make X amount of dollars return on your money, this is, and your lifestyle is this, they rarely put into effect inflation. And that's such a big factor. And what about the fact that we're living longer? I mean, in the old days, many didn't live past retirement. Now many <laughs> are, are living longer than they ever worked. Uh, you're not kidding. Uh, our, our plans, we usually go to 95, but I might have to adjust that. I just had a client turn 100 last week. Wow. And a male, for that matter. And those are, that's usually, you know, it's a, often you hear more females turning 100. And so, yes, uh, you know, most couples, one out of four people will live to 95. So if you take uh, you know four couples, one of those people will live past 95, and and so yeah, uh, longevity risk is I would say between longevity and inflation, they kind of go hand in hand. Those are the two biggest risks to a portfolio. The idea of your stock market going up and down, yeah, that's 
that's more noise than anything. But yeah, the how long you're going to live, you do not want to run out of money. So a huge factor, Scott. And starting early, the key. <laughs> if you could start, yeah, you shouldn't start retirement planning at retirement. So yes, no. uh, um, it, you know, for the listeners out there, if, if you're if you're under 45 and you get you're and you're well on your way, fantastic. Um, if you're a little older, um, can't start soon enough. And even better, maybe your kids or grandkids, even if it's just a small amount uh, per month, and just get in the habit. Um, savings is is kind of like a bill paying. You actually would start feeling guilty if you didn't do it. Uh, so you start off, even if it's $100 a month or a couple hundred dollars a month, and you build it up, and you're paying yourself you know, every month. And that, you know, you got to think way back. That wasn't that was pension plans used to be. You work hmm. for a company. And they would put money into a plan for you and you'd put money in a plan and you get an X amount of dollars per, per month to live on. Well, now you got to pretty much look after yourself. So think of it as really up to yourself to build your own um, successful retirement. The conversation continues Saturday mornings between 8 and 9 on Planning Your Financial Future. Don Fox with his executive financial consultant with the Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management, on how much you need to retire. It's different with everyone. Don, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Anytime. The Globe and Mail reporting Canada's spy agency has informed former conservative leader Aaron O'Toole that he was targeted by Beijing during his time as party chief and remains a target because of his criticism of the Chinese Communist Party. A source close to O'Toole said the conservative MP was briefed on Friday uh, by CSIS and he is still considering how best to reveal details to the public in a manner that balances Canadians' right to know with national security concerns about uh, classified information. To talk more about all of this, Stephen Chase is with us, senior parliamentary reporter at The Globe and Mail, and their latest, along with uh, Robert Fife, former conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, informed he is being targeted by the Chinese government. Stephen here now. Stephen, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. How significant is it that Aaron O'Toole's name has been brought into this? Why is this happening now? Well, he was the leader of the party that was vying to replace the government in the last election. So I think that's pretty significant in itself. Um, I, we wrote this story on Friday. Uh, I should tell you today there's a significant update. Uh, happened a few hours ago. Uh, a third MP, a third opposition MP, has confirmed that CSIS has also briefed them. They were, uh, they, they were in, and also remain a target of the Chinese government, and that is NDP MP Jenny Kwan. Mm. She is the party's immigration critic, and she's from Vancouver. She just held a news conference on the Hill uh, about uh, two and a half hours ago to alert us about this. So now we have Michael Chong. Uh, foreign affairs critic for the Conservatives. We have the former leader of the Conservative Party, and we have uh, a high-profile member of the NDP all coming forward uh, and, and being told by CSIS, you were and remain um, a targets of the, of the, cons- of the Chinese uh, government because of your criticism of China. Uh, on the note with the NDP announcement that just came out, surprise NDP now saying they want uh, David Johnston replace his rapporteur when many are suggesting you can do a lot more than that. Yes, they have said they're going to um, perform a vote, call for a vote tomorrow on a motion. These are votes are non-binding, of course. Uh, but of course, uh, what they're not doing is agreeing to uh, dynamite their coalition or their supply and confidence agreement with the Liberals, uh, which keeps the minority Liberal government in power. Uh, what is Bill Blair's connection to the Aaron O'Toole story? Why was it seems that the information was there and again not being passed up? Well. 
the reason that Bill Blair figures in all of this is that he was the public safety minister uh, during the, the period in question. All three of these MPs uh, have been told they've been targeted, uh, Some, uh, one of them since 2019, one of them since 2020, another one an indeterminate period of time. But during that period, Mr. Blair was the head of the Department of Public Safety, and that, of course, is the department to which the RCMP and CSIS report. And so they would be the ones receiving um, or supposed to be receiving such warnings. Uh, a big theme in this story, of course, which your readers will remember, is that nobody was warned about this until we started reporting on it. Uh, the allegations are that he sat on this information. Is that accurate? Well, um, the allegation is that they weren't warned. We do not know exactly what happened. Uh, we do know that uh, warnings were sent up about Michael Chong, for instance, uh, two and two years ago, nearly two years ago, and that they went nowhere. David Johnson, um, the uh, the Trudeau, the fellow that Trudeau hired to investigate this, had said that uh, it appears that in this case, that case with Mr. Chong, the uh, warnings were sent on a top secret email system that Mr. Blair didn't even have access to. So it's a, what we've highlighted here is a major, major communications or intelligence communications failure in the government right now at actually taking information and acting on it. People aren't even being told about these things or people are not uh, reading what they're given. Uh, Stephen Chase with us from the Globe and Mail. Stephen, you said in the government. And my next question was, we talk about the poor flow of information. Is that poor flow of information in CSIS or is the poor information flow in the government's office? It reminds me of, uh, you know, a porch pirate and the package just doesn't get delivered. Uh, you said in the government. Is this lack of information flow in the government or in CSIS? Do we know? It's it's not in CSIS. Uh, we have uh, written, we have, we have reported on intelligence assessments prepared by CSIS that have been sent to the National Security Advisor, to the Prime Minister, and to the Public Safety Minister's office. The breakdown occurred after they left CSIS. The communications breakdown. Um, we're now hearing of more of this. We remember when this story broke. Uh, that the Prime Minister said, well, now he's informed CSIS to bring this stuff right to his attention. Is that why we're hearing of these names now, or is this just That is process? my best guess, that um, Mr. Trudeau, uh, back at the, when we were first reported on the warnings about Michael Chong that were, whenever were, were passed on to the MP, Mr. Trudeau uh, stood up and said, I've now ordered CSIS to, to inform all MPs of anything. And so it looks like the floodgates have opened. Um, but again, that's a, the question we still have is why didn't this happen two years ago? If it was important to tell them, you should have told them two years ago or whenever the threats first came up. Um, we're hearing uh, as well that uh, the deputy mayor in Markham, who's been drawn into this as well, is now going to sue CSIS. I believe also the Globe and Mail is mentioned in this. Um, what are your thoughts? Uh, we also remember hearing this from the Vancouver mayor. Um, many have suggested, and it's it's documented, that this is a strategy. Racism is used as a strategy to get people to back off. Is that accurate? Well, there's certainly been um, uh, people who equate criticism of the Chinese Communist Party with criticism of Chinese people, and that, of course, is a fallacy. Um, yeah. Those are two different things. And any comments on what this uh, deputy mayor of Markham is saying now and, and being drawn into this? 
Oh, no, I, am, I have no comments on that. So moving forward, Stephen, what happens? Uh, the uh, NDP have already asked for uh, David Johnston to stand by. That sounds like it's sort of a stopgap measure uh, before we get to an actual public inquiry. Is this buying time? How do you think the prime minister is going to react to this? Clearly, this is not going away. No, it's not going away. The entire question period, uh, pretty much the entire question period was taken up with this issue. You've got the block saying we're going to be demanding this every single uh, question period until you uh, call one. We've got the conservatives dedicated the almost the entire question period to this. And, uh, and of course, the NDP uh, bringing forward this motion. So the real challenge for Mr. Trudeau is whether he can he's put a lid on it or not. And it doesn't look like he has so far. What about uh, Jagmeet Singh? He has come out publicly and said he was looking for a public inquiry, yet is sitting and now looking for a replacement for uh, David Johnson. Is that a contradictory uh, of of itself? Well, David Johnson isn't conducting a public inquiry, and Mr. 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 Singh is, is saying that they want a full-fledged public inquiry, like the kind we held into Air India, into the Air India bombing, or into the rendition of Mayor Arar, the Canadian who was rend- renditioned to Syria. Uh, that's what he's looking for is a full-fledged public inquiry, and, and as are the two other parties. So basically, you have members of parliament representing a majority of the House who are calling for this. And uh, the question is Mr. whether Mr. Trudeau can contain this or whether it's going to continue to dominate the, the agenda going forward. Former Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole informed he is being targeted by Chinese government. This was before the weekend. Stephen Chase and Robert Fife penning this uh, article in the Globe and Mail. Stephen, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care. 900 CHML, it's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. My goodness, where do we go from here uh, with uh, David Johnston's report coming out, not uh, asking for a public inquiry, the NDP now not wanting a public inquiry, but then suggesting that David Johnston should step away from all of this. It is just absolutely bizarre after uh, this report has come out, um, really creating more questions than it does provide answers. And writing in the Ottawa Citizen, Phil Gursky says David Johnston owes the Canadian intelligence community an apology. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and former CSIS analyst, former CSIS analyst is with us. And the latest in uh, the uh, in the Ottawa Citizen, um, David Johnson owes Canada spy agency an apology. The special rapporteur's scathing words on our intelligence agencies were unfair and frankly insulting. We await uh, an apology. And to talk more about this, Phil Gursky here now. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. It's been a while, Scott. How are you, sir? Oh, I've been waiting to talk to you for an awfully long time, <laughs> Phil. You must be reeling with all of this. Are your ears burning? I mean, what were your thoughts? And and he put out, a, a David Johnson put out an op-ed, and boy, that went over like a lead balloon. Uh, what are your thoughts being a former CSIS analyst? Oh, I think I'm sad, Scott. I, you know, I spent more than three decades in this business. I have a lot of very close friends who spent an equal amount of time as I did. As I said in the op-ed, we go to work one day with, for go to work every day with one one task only, and that's to provide the best intelligence possible so governments can use it to make better decisions. And to have the, the you know this intelligence dismissed as well, it's piecemeal and it's not very accurate, and maybe it's rumors, and maybe it's not getting to the right people, and that seizes his fault. Uh, you know. In some ways, Scott, thank God I'm retired because I'm not sure I could go to work tomorrow morning if I realized that the all the intelligence that CSIS have been producing for decades on China 
has gone nowhere. And as a consequence, China has been uh, had had a free ride in interfering with our democracy for a very long time. You bring up a valid point, Phil, and I've been hammering at this for weeks when the prime minister seemingly blamed CSIS for not getting this information to him. I had a very plain conversation um, uh, with Stephen Chase from the Globe and Mail just before talking to you and said the same thing that I've said to many guests. Uh, you know, everybody says there is a what was the word they use? Lack of information, poor information flow is the poor information flow in CSIS or is the poor information flow in the government in the prime minister's office because it seems like a porch pirate's there and stealing the package of information before it actually gets there and Stephen Chase came right out and said it is not CSIS so why is the prime minister throwing CSIS under the bus this way because he's alluding that it's CSIS fault that this information is not getting through Stephen Chase says it's the opposite I'm sure you've heard the phrase shoot the messenger in the past sometime, uh, mm. you know, Scott. Uh, it's an easy, we're an easy target because CSIS is not going to go public and defend itself because of the nature of the organization in the sense, CSE even less so. No, it's because, uh, you know, it, why, why admit guilt if you can blame someone that's not going to stand up for themselves? And yet I know categorically, having worked with CSIS, having worked with CSE before that, I know how distribution works. I know that intelligence is sent as soon as possible, as soon as it's prepared to offices and to people who need to see it. And then they decide if anybody higher up, you know, should actually be on on the list as well. That's not a CSIS decision. That's what they have to decide. So for the prime minister and and everyone else say, well, we didn't get it because CSIS didn't send it to us. Um, Can I say horse feathers on the radio? Is that okay in 2023? Mm. Um, The information was provided. It was the officials in the chain that are at fault, not CSIS and not CSE. Uh, so, um, uh, so again, can we confirm that this is in the prime minister's office where this flow is stopping, not with CSIS? Is that in plain view? It's somewhere. Now, you know, governments are complex. There's the you know, prime minister's office, yeah. there's the privy council office. There could be a whole bunch of hurdles between the initial senior officials that get a hold of the intelligence, by the way, hand delivered to them by CSIS and CSE liaison people whose job it is to get intelligence into their hands. And then they have decided or not decided or went out for a coffee or out for a smoke. I don't know. And decided not to, uh, you know, flag it for further consumption. I don't know why. You'd have to ask them why they didn't do it. But to me, there's no question. CSIS did its job. It gathered, gathered the intelligence. It processed it. It corroborated it. It put it up in a nice package with a bow, you know, maybe spritz some, uh, you know, lavender on top so it smelled good and provided it to people who needed to know they failed to act on it, that's their problem, not CSIS. Uh, the Prime Minister, when the Globe and Mail story broke, said he had now ordered CSIS to anything that's interference with an MP, you shoot this right up the chain. We're hearing of Aaron O'Toole and another uh, NDP MP also being interfered. Is that a result of this? How, how do you square this one? Oh, now they've got a direct line to, uh, to those that are being harassed. Well... <laughs> Part of it's the lack of intelligence culture, Scott. You know, I've talked about this in the past. I have a very good friend who used to deliver intelligence to President Obama, what's called the presidential daily brief. She got to see him, you know, basically daily or you know, or weekly in some occasions and actually say, here, sir, here's what you need to know. We don't have that. Are we going to get it? Uh, maybe. But um, I find it a bit, a bit disingenuous that intelligence that's been ignored for 30 to 40 years and now we're going to start giving it to the prime minister when it's been going to him all along and it's been ignored. Does that make a difference? Uh Wish I could say yes, Scott. I don't think I'm 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 quite there yet to acknowledge that this problem has been resolved 
and we're going to act on this in the way we should have for the past four decades. Where do you think this is going now? Because clearly it is not uh, dying, and the NDP have said that they want David Johnson removed from any of this stuff moving forward, which really doesn't answer why they're not going to pull the plug with the agreement they have. He does control and has said he wants a public inquiry. What about the removal of David Johnson? Is that going to make any difference? I mean, the report's Mm. out. Uh, What I think needs to happen is that we need a real calling to task of the officials who received the intelligence when they received it and why they chose not to flag it up the line for more senior officials. That's where the you know, inquiry, again, I blow hot and cold on inquiry, Scott, but we need to know why these people thought this wasn't important enough to bring to the attention of the prime minister and other senior officials. Forget CSIS, forget CSE, forget the distribution system. You tell Canadians why you thought when a foreign power tried to influence our elections on two occasions, you didn't think that was important enough to, to act upon right away then we might get some answers. Uh, Phil Kursky with us. David Johnson owes Canada spies an apology. Uh, that in the Ottawa Citizen, you can find it there. And of course, uh, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Phil, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, sir. Thanks, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Michael Chan, former Ontario cabinet minister, who is currently the deputy mayor of Markham, uh, who has been the focus of intelligent leaks related to Chinese interference in Canada, is suing CSIS as well as the Globe and Mail, uh, saying the spy agency publicly humiliated him because of a stereotypical typecast of immigrants born in China as being somehow untrustworthy. That's a quote. He says the uh, persecution by uh, CSIS began in 2010 and has continued recently with disclosure of what he called unreliable and frail intelligence reports. To talk more about all of this, Christian Leprac with us, professor at both Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, and fellow at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute with us now. Christian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Well, good afternoon, Scott. I guess I'm not that well when the government continues to dither on defending our democratic institutions, but we'll hope that uh, collectively there might be some progress on this issue. Now, we have talked about this in the past of what I'm going to talk about, and I want to make very uh, clear here, this is about the Chinese Communist Party. This is not about Canadian Chinese immigrants that are living here and trying to to do uh, and create a great life as all immigrants do. But uh, uh, I remember you having an article on this a while ago, and we talked about this a while ago. We've seen it also with some politics in Vancouver, municipal politics here. We're seeing it in municipal politics in Markham, where as soon as accusations are being made, that immediately it turns to racism or the allegations of racism. You have written on how this is a strategy for the Chinese Communist Party. Can you explain? Yeah, this is, of course, what Michael Chan is, I think, partially capitalizing on here. And some members of cabinet uh, have reinforced this narrative, the narrative by the Communist Party of China, uh, that any actions taken by the government of Canada would sort of reinforce uh, racist perceptions or sort of racism towards uh, towards Canadians. Of course, the only entity that's being racist here uh, is the uh, regime in Beijing that is actively discriminating against Hong Kong activists, Uyghurs, uh, Tibetans 
Ireland's and the like. And of course, there's no moral equivalency here uh, in terms of uh, somehow uh, treatment of Japanese Canadians and so forth, because there's no concern here of the government actively discriminating against any one population group. To the contrary, this is about the government of Canada failing to do the right thing in terms of ensuring that all Canadians in this country can feel safe from coercion, harassment, uh, intimidation by an authoritarian, hostile foreign power. Uh, what Michael Chan is trying to do, I think, is also going to have a significant chilling effect uh, by CSIS in terms of at least articulating publicly concerns it has uh, with regards to the unreliability of uh, potentially of Canadians. And it also puts CSIS in a tough spot because it now means uh, the security uh, service may have to reveal some of its sources and methods and intelligence agencies are always loath uh, to do that. And so when you're before court, um, uh, so it, it probably means that the government may need to settle um, uh, because it's going to be rather difficult, I think, for the service to uh, or for the crown to defend against the allegations that are being leveled here against the security service uh, without inadvertently uh, compromising um, the methods and sources that the security service has in support of the uh, concerns that it has raised publicly. Why use the strat strategy? Why is it successful for them? Uh, but it is a uh, because China knows that uh, Canada is particularly sensitive to any narratives and discourses um, around racism. China understands the nuances of identity politics in this country. It, of course, understands that this country does have a racist uh, history, whether when it comes to uh, immigrants and a racialized immigration policy uh, or other actions that it has taken in the past. Uh, uh, but of course, this is an effort to try to um, to, to try to twist in a rather um, uh, in a rather bizarre uh, way that history into knots in order to try to turn the tables and avert any action by the government of Canada that could actually be meaningful in fending off the sort of subversion, interference, and subterfuge that we have seen from the United Front Work Department, which is the arm that effectively. Uh, operationalizes uh, these interference operations in Canada and elsewhere on behalf of the regime in Beijing. How can you claim racism like when we've got two candidates, another one announced today from the NDP of Chinese heritage that are being targeted? Doesn't that dismiss that? Well, uh, we would have to think that Canadians can hopefully uh, uh, look through that smokescreen that the regime in Beijing is trying to put up. And it is unfortunate um, when um, uh, when Canadians uh, feel that they need to sue our security service for concerns uh, that it has articulated um, and that ultimately go back many years um, when it comes to actions by the uh, by the regime. I can understand and I guess I have sympathies when people's names are uh, publicly revealed um, in this sort of conversation. Um, but ultimately, people make their choices. And it is ultimately, I suppose, in this particular case for uh, the public to judge whether individuals are reliable or not. Um, this is what a democratic process is ultimately for. Um, and it is putting all Canadians on notice that we need to be on guard, that unfortunately, Beijing does actively leverage uh, relations within Canada for nefarious purposes to undermine our democratic institutions. 
Christian Leprac with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Always fascinating, Christian. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Have a great afternoon. I find this fascinating um, because I'm 60 years old. I used to actually live in Alberta, in Calgary for a while. Uh, great place, great province, great cities. Um, and I used to have Daniel Smith on uh, the, the radio talking about Alberta when she was on the air. And one of the big questions is the West is constantly saying the East doesn't pay any attention and has no idea what's going on out west but it seems with the election we can't shut the dang thing off it's all we're seeing out here um not the not the gas and oil industry and not the woes of albertans not health care but what about that election boy it's uh it's getting a lot of attention why let's add uh let's ask rather Dwayne bratt phd professor of political science department of economics justice and policy studies at mount royal university and with us now Dwayne, thanks for the time hope you're well I'm doing well, Scott. How do you explain the interest in the rest of uh, Canada, certainly in Ontario, on your election? I can't shut it off. It's everywhere. Uh, Why? uh, It is. It is. It's unlike any other election I've been involved with uh, out here, the the national focus. And I think part of it is both leaders are familiar names. Um, You know, Rachel Notley was premier for four years. Um, she'll, if, if she wins tonight, she'll be the first Alberta premier and one of the very few Canadian premiers in history to have lost an election and then come back and, and won a subsequent election. And Daniel Smith, despite being premier for only seven months, is also a national figure. She was an opposition leader with the Wild Rose Party a decade ago and almost won the 2012 election and then was a prominent a radio host uh, for for years after, and she made national headlines back in December of 2014 when she crossed the floor as opposition leader to join Jim Prentice's government. So I think there's a lot of fascination with uh, the two leaders. I think the election is close, so that generates interest. And Alberta remains, you know, a major economic engine in in Canada, and I think that that adds to it. Is it her position on the right? It's headlines, sells, sells press, sells media. Oh, oh I think so. Um, and I mean, she's she said a lot of really provocative things. It's uh, it's mm. really been a lot of a gaffes by Smith, where they brought back old tapes of hers. Uh, the ethics commissioner released a damning report about interference in the judicial system on behalf of a, a Calgary pastor by the name of Bart Puzlowski, and that broke in the middle of the campaign. Um, so it's it's an interesting case of survival. I mean, the polls are tight, but they show a, uh, a more likely than not UCP win, despite all of this activity. And high turnout, so lots of interest. Oh, a- absolutely. Um, and so we will we will see. Although it's interesting that one of the key demographics, and then I believe the people that will decide this election are traditional conservative voters in the city of Calgary who feel uncomfortable with Daniel Smith as leader. And so the question is, what do they do? Do they say, better the devil I know than Rachel Notley, so I'll go with with, uh, Smith? Or do they say, no, um, Smith's behavior is disqualifying, Uh, Notley wasn't as bad as I remembered, so I'm going to go vote for her. Or more likely, 
What conservatives do when they're cranky in this province, they stay at home. So while there's a mm. lot of intense interest, that doesn't necessarily mean that voter turnout will be high if some conservatives decide they'll just stay at home because they can't stomach either leader. Obviously, Alberta, traditionally uh, conservative. and But can you explain to us in the East how you go from conservatives right to the NDP and bypass the liberals altogether, which you know, many consider in between the two. Uh, yeah, how do you, the liberals how, have just disappeared. Um, yeah. You know, someone needs to euthanize that party. Uh, they, they're, they're running, I think, 19 candidates this time. Uh, and what the NDP did is they solidified all of the progressive voters under the NDP banner. Um, and a lot of that was due to the personal popularity of Rachel Notley. Bear in mind, in 2012, um, the NDP won four seats in this province. Then in 2015, they went from four to 54. And even though they lost the 2019 election, they still held over 20 seats and Notley stuck around. And even this election, if they lose, they will still have you know 45, 46% of the vote. So we have moved into a pure two-party system with a party on the right and party on, on the left, similar to BC, or Manitoba or Saskatchewan. Ontario remains one of those provinces where there are still three free parties, but that's not the case in Alberta anymore. It's a pure two-party system. Uh, why the Liberals vacant? Is I mean, we've even seen the provincial uh, uh, Liberal Party change their name, and you were talking of, referred to other provinces. Why is it so vacant? Is is like a rebranding needed here? I don't know. The Liberals have. Um, have always centrist parties have uh, had trouble of of late. Um, the exception to to the rule around centrist parties has always been the federal liberals, which, if you look historically, have almost been the default option in Canada. They've governed the country much longer than any anywhere else. Compare that to the absence of a centrist party in the United States, the collapse of the liberals in Britain and in Europe. And so there's something sort of unique about the federal liberals um, that uh, simply isn't replicated in other Western uh, democracies or in many provinces in this country, with the exception, as I said, of, uh, of Ontario. How does Rachel Notley separate herself from the federal version of the party and Jugmeet Singh? Because well, clearly, and, and that, on, uh, clearly I mean, on things uh, like oil and gas, they don't agree. The strategy of Smith is to tie Notley to both Trudeau and especially to Jagmeet Singh. And they've been using this line about Jagmeet Singh is the boss of Rachel Notley because under the party constitution of the NDP, if you're a member of the provincial party, you're a member of the federal party. Well, it, it, yes, that's true technically, but it's it's really an absurd argument to think that a third place or a fourth place party leader federally would be more powerful than John Horgan when he was premier or David Eby, who's premier in B.C., or Rachel Notley when she was premier. But Singh is not popular in Alberta. And in fact, Notley has gone out of a way to criticize Singh on many of his energy policies. Pierre Polyev endorsed Daniel Smith. Singh did not endorse Notley, nor would his endorsement help, nor would it be mm. wanted. Same thing with Trudeau. Trudeau is not popular in this province. Notley is, and that's why they're spending as much time saying, you know, a vote for Notley is a vote for Trudeau.
How will this impact other provinces? We started this by saying how we're all talking about it. How will this be reflected no matter what the choice is in other provinces? I think it has a lot to do with federal-provincial relations. So there's a lot of controversial items that Smith has put on pause for the uh, election campaign, such as potentially pulling out of the Canadian pension plan, um, such as invoking the Alberta Sovereignty Act that would allow the Alberta government to nullify federal legislation if it determined it was in provincial jurisdiction. If those things come back, those have an impact not just on the relationship between the federal government and Alberta, but it affects Ontario, it affects BC, it affects Newfoundland, it affects Quebec. Saskatchewan is doing something similar with the Saskatchewan First Act. So I think there could be some real strains on the Federation. Likewise, if we look at Trudeau's climate policy, it's tough to achieve those targets without the aid and support of Alberta, uh, given that we remain the highest per capita uh, emitter. And so there are national implications uh, at stage plus, Alberta remains a major economic engine in, in Canada. All right. Dwayne Pratt with his PhD, professor of political science, Department of Economics, Justice and Policy Studies, Mount Royal University. Big day in Alberta as the election is underway. Dwayne, thanks for the time. Good luck. Enjoy the night. Okay. Will do. See you, Scott. Guess what? Sinking the Argonauts. Like you don't know that. Preseason action. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with the Hamilton Spectator with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. And there go our hubcaps. (laughs) (laughs) Look, the minivan's on jacks. It's on blocks. Let me tell you, it's got nothing to do with the lawns, although it's the side streets. My favorite story ever, Scott, from Iverwind Stadium was probably the second year that Bob Young owned the team, maybe 2005, 2006, something like that. And on Labor Day, they had the Canadian Thunderbirds parachuting into the stadium. <laughs> but it was, out, it was unbelievably windy that day, which caused all kinds of problems for the parachuters. And so one of them landed about a mile away, uh, missed the stadium altogether. One of them hit the side of the scoreboard at the... <laughs> At Ooh. the east end, came in, coming in hot and slammed into the side. But my, the, the one guy is going right for the hydro wire. And I'm sitting next to my colleague, Steve Milton, in the press box. First and only time I've ever held Steve's hand. We're <laughs> watching this guy aiming for the, pre, for the wires, thinking he's going to die. And I'm grabbing his hand and we're like, no. And this guy did this maneuver that got himself under the wires and landed, wow. landed safely on the street. Only to notice that he was landing right in front of a school bus bearing down on him that had no idea a guy was going <laughs> to fall out of the sky in the middle of the road. Oh, Almost man. got run over after dodging the thing. One guy, I think, as I recall, landed in the stadium, but it was the funniest thing you've ever seen. Just parachuters all over the city of Hamilton, none hitting the target. It was great. It was, um, yeah. Well, you know, it's sometimes the events that don't work out that are the most yeah, remember, the memorable most. ones. That That's one of the fireworks that almost burned the place down. That was a good one, too. Uh, so your thoughts on the preseason win, does it mean anything? What no. are your thoughts in the, what you're seeing so far? No, it means nothing. It means less than nothing. Uh, and it, like it was good. Uh, Bo Levi Mitchell looked good, but in unbelievably limited action. And that's the other part. Uh, it's good that he looked good because this team absolutely must have Bo, Le- Bo Levi Mitchell playing like the Bo Levi Mitchell Mm. of his, the majority of his career, not the last two years. If he, if he is the Bo Levi Mitchell of his last two years, the Ticats are snookered. 
because he wasn't very good and he was injured. But if he can be the guy who was arguably the best in the league for eight or nine years before that, bingo, let's go. Uh, he was in there for a very brief period of time, looked good, but you need more than, what was it? Five passes, four passes, mm. six passes to really make any kind of grade on him. But Hey, I mean, way better that he looked good in a really, really, really brief period of time than looked terrible. Yeah. Good point. Fingers crossed. All right. I got to ask you this. Are you, you know, I lived out West for three years in Calgary. Great time, great city, mm. great everything. Uh, great skiing. Um, and, and the West always complained, the Eastern scums and pigs, they never pay any attention to us. We, they don't care anything that we're doing. They have no interest. I, I cannot believe the amount of coverage we have seen here on Alberta's election and, uh, Rachel Notley and Daniel Smith. Are, are you surprised how much attention we don't give a rat's rear in about their industry, their economics or, or anything else, but we care a lot about the election. Um, I think it has helped that. Uh, usually when we look at elections in other provinces, we don't know who the players are, which makes it difficult to follow. I think we know who Rachel Notley is because she's yeah. been pre, uh, premier before. So that helps. Danielle Smith has said some things that have got attention. Uh, they are, I mean, uh, uh, oftentimes in politics, you're having people with different points of view, but I can't imagine two people at more extreme opposites than the mm. two of them. And you've got a lot of stuff going on in federal politics that involve a lot of other provinces, energy and things like that, which Alberta is right at the center of. So I, I'm not entirely shocked. I, I probably would be more shocked if you were to say, um, you know, that we're paying really, really close attention to the PEI election or the, <laughs> you know, the, 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 there are name brands in this one and there are issues that affect the entire country. So I'm not entirely shocked that we're as following this one as closely as we are all right got a few seconds left you want to plug anything coming up uh, i got a question for you mm. and uh, we don't usually talk about this on the radio but is is menstruation stigmatized in this country oh look we're out of time yeah uh we're Scott talk Radley. About that because somehow <laughs> somehow our federal government has decided yeah. this is the issue that we have yeah. to pay attention to that women's issues are stigmatized in this country. I, 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 maybe I've missed it, but I've never once, at least in the last 25 years, heard anybody say, like nothing, nothing like that. I, I just, I don't get what the government is doing to make this the issue. I don't get it. Another distraction away well, from other more pressing issues, perhaps? That's my guess. Yeah, and, and one that nobody is willing to talk about because it's, you know, maybe it is stigmatized or maybe it's just something you don't necessarily talk about in polite company all the time. Anyway, we'll get into that today. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. You're welcome. And rats. Yeah. <laughs> We'll leave it at that. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thanks for listening. Greatly appreciated. Thanks to uh, Dave and Jen in the newsroom, Erskine for booking the guests, and on the board, Major Tom McKay. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. To have the last word and Jim emails, it's been a tough week. It's been a tough weekend for the hammer. Let's remember who we are and support and not divide, hug rather than argue. Well said. 99.